0: Amen and amen, all we have is Christ. If you have a Bible, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we finish our series, Resident Aliens. We've been in this series now for 16 weeks, walking through Peter's letter, walking through these five chapters, and I hope and I pray that this letter has been as rich and as encouraging for you as it has been for me. We close out this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to the end of the chapter, 1 Peter 5, 5, in the same way, you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober minds. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter of Peter, the rock, so bold, sometimes so silly, often putting his foot in his mouth. You used him just like you use all of us, jars of clay to further your purposes and strengthen the church. We pray for other churches in the city of Abilene that preach the gospel. We pray for South Point Church this morning, that you would be with them as their body gathers, that your word would encourage them, that their gospel would go forth and that you would be with them. Be with our leaders, be with Jamie Pope and Matt and the others there. Strengthen them. May they continue to pursue you. May their number one priority be holiness. Would you bless their ministry there on Buffalo Gap? Pray for us here as we continue to search for a youth minister that you would lead the elders very clearly, that you would provide, you would bring unity. uh, Just show us how you have. We give you praise that you've shown us so clearly with Taylor and with Cody. We give you praise and we ask for continued provision. And as we turn to your word, Lord, open our minds, our ears, our hearts. May we leave here different than we came in. For Christ's sake, we pray in his name. Amen. Three calls, as Peter concludes this morning, and those are humble yourselves, cast your anxieties on the Lord, and then third, watch out for the enemy. And so first point he has here is to humble yourselves, to be humble. We see that in verses 5 and 6 there in chapter 5. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago in chapters 5 verses 1 to 4, he exhorted the elders to pastor God's flock and to oversee it, not as dictators, not as greedy, not out of obligation, but as examples to the flock. The story is told of a tour guide leading some folks around Jerusalem and he was talking about shepherds and sheep and he says you shepherds always lead from the front shepherds never lead the sheep pushing from the back and they're driving around and they look over and there's a bunch of sheep and there's this man just kind of frustrated and angry trying to push the sheep from the back and they said well, I thought you said that shepherds always lead from the front who's this guy over here leading from the back and he says a great question he goes over and he he inquires what's going on and he comes back on the bus and says that man's not the shepherd that man is the butcher. <laughs> well, shepherds lead from the front. He says, we lead by example rather than driving from behind. And then in verse five, now Peter exhorts the younger to submit to those elders. And then right after that, he calls all of us to submit as we've seen again and again. in Peter, if we don't like the call to submit to the authorities, God has put over us, we're just not going to like the Bible. Because it's on almost every page, and especially Peter. And now he calls all of us to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And humility is really just knowing who we are, isn't it? Knowing is no, humility is just knowing our place in the divine order. If we know who we are, and if we know who God is, humility ensues. And here Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Cover all of us with it. This imagery of clothing ourselves is a common one in Scripture when it comes to how we ought to behave. Let me read several for you. Romans 13 says we are to put on the armor of light. Ephesians 6, we are to put on the full armor of God. Colossians 3 says we are to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, Patience, and then he says we are to put on love, which binds them all together. Then Romans 13, we are to clothe ourselves with Christ Himself. Because he is the paradigm of humility, isn't he? The one who was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and dying even in obedience unto death on a cross for our sake. Clothe yourselves with the one who, on his mission to the cross, the message he wants to leave with his disciples is he's going to put on a towel and perform the task of a menial slave and wash the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples to leave us an example of what he's about. The one who came not to be served but to serve, clothe yourselves with Christ. Clothe yourselves with humility. Romans 12, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather... Think of yourselves with sober judgment. Be humble. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Romans 12, do not be conceited. Humility is one of the paramount virtues for the people of God. And here God says you need to clothe yourselves with it. And it should come easy, right? Humility should be easy for Christians. A proud Christian should be an oxymoron. To be humble should be our natural posture, right? I love the question we're asked in 1 Corinthians. What do we have that we did not receive? Answer, not a thing. And so why do we act as if we didn't receive it? Why do we act as if we earned it? For us, knowing what we know about the God of the universe, to be proud is just silly. It's like a three-year-old wanting to correct my pronunciation of something. So listen, I'm I'm 35. You're three. I'm not even relying on memory. I'm I'm reading the paper here. You can't even spell your name. (laughs) Not an ounce of humility, just a declaration. Pride is so silly for us. It ought to just be strange for Christians to be proud. It's so out of place if we know who we are and we know who he is. You know, it says put on humility, but then he gives us the reason why. He quotes from Proverbs 3, we're to clothe ourselves with humility, quote, because God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Listen, I don't know a lot of things, but I know this. We do not want the God of the universe opposed to us. Clothe yourselves with humility because God is opposed to those who aren't humble, but he shows favor to the humble. That's what we want. We want the favor of God. Look there at verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, because God opposes the proud, humble yourselves under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time. So it's our responsibility. We must humble ourselves. This is on us. There's a little book. Uh, called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. I strongly recommend it. If you want a link to it, it's on our website under resources, under recommended reading. You'll find a link there. It's just called Humility. And towards the end of that book, he gives us several practices on how we can produce humility. He says, Always reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. We see that if we're in the Bible, we're going to see it every week. Even Peter, remember, he keeps pointing us back. Every five verses, he's going to point us back to the cross of Christ. And so we as Christians ought to strive to be cross-centered people, reading scripture, but even studying the cross, reading books about the cross. Because as we do that, we will become humble. So always do that. But then he says in the mornings, as each day begins, here are some practices. Number one, acknowledge your dependence upon God. Just wake up and the first thought is, there ain't nothing happening today unless the Lord is in it. I can do nothing including swing my legs out of bed if the Lord doesn't allow it. I am completely dependent upon him for everything that this day is going to bring forward. So we acknowledge that too. We express gratefulness. Not only am I dependent upon him, I'm thankful that he's given me air to breathe, lungs to breathe with. My name is written in the book of life. What's going to happen today is going to be from a God hand who loves me, from a father who knows what I need even better than I know it myself. And so we express gratefulness to God. Then we practice the spiritual disciplines. As we pray and as we read his word, humility will ensue. Proud people don't know themselves and don't know their God. So if we practice the spiritual disciplines, we will become more humble. Then he says, seize your commute. So if you've got to drive somewhere in the morning, seize your commute to memorize and meditate on scripture. I wonder what you do during your commute. I wonder if it is eternally profitable. (laughs) Probably not. And so take advantage of that time and focus on the Lord. And then he says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. So that's how to start the day. And then he gives us a few practices on how we can end our day As each day ends Transfer the glory to God. Anything good happened that day, give God the glory. Lord, we give you the glory for everything that happened today. It was because of you. This went well. It wouldn't have went well because of you. You deserve the glory. This didn't go so well, but I know you're at work in it. You get the glory. And so transfer God, the glory to God. And then finally, every night, receive the gift of sleep, knowing God's purposes for it. You ever think much about sleep? Do you have a theology of sleep? Personally, sleep is one of the most frustrating things in my life. I could just do so much more without having to lay horizontal for eight hours a day. But the Lord intends for us to acknowledge I can only go for 12 hours or so, and then I've got to lay down and close my eyes for four-fifths of my life, it feels like. I've got to get eight hours. I wait, I've tried six. I crash on, like, day four. I've got to get seven to eight hours of sleep. God intends for that to humble me. I need sleep, he doesn't. And so that should humble us every night. We're reminded of our weakness, our smallness. For special focus, C.J. Mahaney says we ought to study some things. We ought to study the attributes of God. Understanding who God is and where we are, that will produce humility. He says we ought to study the doctrines of grace and how gracious God has been to us and how much we need it. We ought to study the doctrine of sin. You're not going to learn about sin turning the television on. If you read your Bible, we can understand more about sin, and obviously that will humble us. And then finally he says we ought to laugh. We ought to laugh often, and we ought to laugh at ourselves. Humble people laugh. So Peter says humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, which again is Exodus language. Peter has alluded to the Exodus probably 12 times in these short chapters, and here this phrase mighty hand comes from the Exodus. Let me read Exodus 13.9. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt, that's the Exodus, with his mighty hand, We can humble ourselves. We can embrace. Remember the context of First Peter. We can embrace the suffering that comes our way because we stand under the protection of God's mighty hand. The one who created all things. The one who formed his people and the one who delivered them from Egypt. He is able to see us through and so we can accept what he brings. We can humble ourselves. Except that difficult circumstances are a part of God's plan. As we've seen week after week in 1 Peter. Don't rage against him. Humble yourselves under him. Don't rail. Don't raise your fist. Humble yourselves. That's the first point. Humble yourselves. The second Peter tells us is cast your anxieties on him. Look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. Remember, Peter's original audience had all sorts of things they could be anxious about, right? Being increasingly persecuted verbally and beyond, and they know the heat is just getting turned up. And he says, cast your cares on him. He cares for you. Really, he said the same thing in chapter 4, verse 19. Look over at the other page. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Cast your cares on him. Commit yourselves to him. I wonder, do you struggle with anxiety? All right, about 20% do. The other 80% struggle with dishonesty. That's okay. That's job security for me. We all struggle with anxiety, you bunch of liars. Let's try that again. Do you struggle with anxiety? We all struggle with anxiety to some extent. Every single human being in this fallen world. Struggles with anxiety to certain extents. We all do, but we should not excuse it. We should grab it and we should cast it on the Lord. That's what Peter says. Cast your anxieties on Him. He can take care of us. Anxiety is actually quite serious because if you think about what anxiety is, it's really just a lack of faith, it's a lack of trust in God. What anxiety and, and worry is, is saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Because if you did, this would be happening, and I wouldn't be anxious about it. So we are to cast it, fight against it. Anxiety and worry show that we don't believe God is who he said he is. We're saying he's not doing his job well enough. And like all sins, the root of anxiety is idolatry. Whatever thing or event or person, and it's different for all of us, But whatever thing or event or person that we're anxious about is actually displacing God. I love the African theologian, Augustine. He said it this way. He said, anxiety is just smoke from the fires. The fire is our idolatry. Worry is just the smoke rising up. And so if you trace the smoke, you follow the trail, you'll see somewhere we have substituted something for God. Peter says, cast your anxiety on him. Go to him. Cast it on him. Bring it to him. He cares for you. Go to him in prayer again. Humble people pray. Proud people don't. My prayer life is an indicator of my own pride. When I'm proud, I think I'm self-sufficient. No need to ask him for anything. When I'm humble and I know my place and I know my needs, I am prayerful. I'm full of prayer. Why should you cast your anxieties on him? He tells us right there, notice, because he cares for you. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of creation cares for you and you can go to him and he loves to hear from you and he loves your anxiety to be cast on him? Even when it's hard, even when things are going terribly, right? This is what we've seen in 1 Peter so far. We know that he's at work. He's for you even in the midst of suffering. Right? Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. It's been a while. In all this, all the trials, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that... Here's the purpose of the all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Even when things are hard, we know that we can trust him because he cares for us and he's using the trial to produce faith that is purified, that leads to glorying in Christ when he returns. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He repeats himself in case we didn't get it three chapters earlier. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. God is for us. Who can be against us? Romans eight thirty one. Well, the answer is a lot of people can actually be against us, a lot of earthly things, but at the end of the day, if God is for us, nothing can be against us. Lord can send sickness, persecution, famine, doesn't matter. He cares for us, and we can be glad in that. I the way Jesus teaches us over in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He says this, Therefore I tell you, Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. I think that might be a command that some of us just need to hear. The Lord of the universe, who has all authority, says, Do not worry about your life. He tells us why. Worrying at the end of the day is totally pointless. It will not add an hour to your life. Likely, it will take hours from your life. So when we're worrying, we should just turn it into prayer and cast our anxieties on it. Jesus says, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we wear? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What shall we eat? The pagans, those who don't know me, they run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. They'll be taken care of. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. (laughs) I love the realistic teaching of Jesus here. Cast your anxieties on the Lord because the Lord cares for you. And then the third thing we have this morning is watch out for the enemy. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober minds. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen he says be alert be of sober mind Have you noticed this is pretty much a big deal to Peter he said it several times. Look over at chapter 1, verse 13. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, and then flip over to chapter 4, verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober minds, so that you may pray. I think this is a big deal to Peter because his command is embedded in his own life history. You remember Peter? Many things we could say about Peter. One time, the Lord says, I want you to stay and watch. And he goes and he's going to pray at Gethsemane. And Peter doesn't watch, he doesn't stay alert, he doesn't stay sober minded. He dozes off. And Jesus says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray. So that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, Peter says, You've got to stay alert. You've got to be of sober minds. You've got to be serious about this Christian life. And we need to hear this today because so many who claim the name of Christ are asleep, they're just drifting, they're just going through the motions. Not awake, not alert, not living with a sense of urgency. Maybe that's you, brother or sister. Today is the day to to commit to doing the Lord's will, to following him, to trusting in him, to renouncing worldliness. We need to be alert, on guard. Why? Because we're in a war. The enemy is alive and well. He's actively seeking to weaken your faith. Do you believe that? He's actively seeking to destroy your faith and take you down. He's like a prowling lion seeking to devour. Have you ever seen a lion hunt? They don't announce it. They prowl very subtly and smoothly. And so we've got to be on alert. Got to be awake. Last week we were able to go uh, to Colorado and went up to Pike uh, National Forest and do some hiking. And they said, hey, watch out for mountain lions. And I'm thinking, okay, great. I've got a bunch of little kids. Don't have to deal with mountain lions in uh, West Texas. So I asked them what to do, and they basically said, you know what, be alert. I've got a picture I can show you. It's a ferocious crew. We were ready. <laughs> and so basically, Taylor pointed out, it looks like I already lost the battle because a lion ate my right leg. But <laughs> <laughs> so we would go about 25 feet, and we would stop, and we would look, we would listen looking at the treetops, and then we'll go another 25 feet. We were on alert. Now, I don't know how many often people see them, but all I know is I've got a bunch of little kids, and those things have jaws that go for the windpipe. And so we were alert. I saw recently this clip of this guy who got way too casual with a line. The line was way away, and he's in, he's in this cage just thinking he's okay, and all of a sudden the line turns, and it was too little too late. And so he tries to, the, the gate was right here. It didn't matter. He tries to turn, the line was there like that. Grabbed him, pulled him off like a rag doll, and he lived. But that's the image we ought to think of here. That's our enemy. Be alert and of sober mind, he prowls around. Like a roaring lion. We tend to miss this image. Most of us have only seen lions like at the zoo. You know, little sleepy cats that done pretty boring, right? In Austin, they've got this zoo. It's kind of like a sanctuary, uh, kind of like an animal hospital. And so the animals are there for not for long, and they, uh, they come in for various reasons. So we come our first time, and we're coming in. The lion exhibit's way across, but we hear a roar. I and mean, then the bass in that lion roar makes your bones shake from all the way across the zoo. This is our enemy. You don't treat lions lightly. So Peter says, be alert. He's seeking to devour you. Be alert. Because you know what lions do to sheep. I wonder how different we would live if we could see this spiritual dimension of the Christian life. I wonder how different we would live if we even believed the words on this page. If we believe that we have an enemy, if we believe that our struggle is not against people, it's not against flesh and blood, it's the authorities, the rulers, the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's our response then? Look at the next verse there in verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Our response is to resist the enemy. James helps us a little bit to understand what he means by resist. James is right before 1 Peter. Flip back just a couple pages to James chapter 4. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. Same phrase, And he will flee from you. Then he helps us with the positive aspect. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you resist the devil by pursuing the Lord. How do you pursue the Lord again? Through his word and through prayer and through his people. Pursue the Lord. Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith. He's not talking about our own individual faith here. He's talking about the faith the body of doctrine that we've received, the Christian faith. So stand firm in believing what the Word says about who God is and who Christ is and who we are, what we're called to be, what we're called to do. Stand firm in it. Don't be pushed around. Stands. Don't be blown back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Be solid, resist, and stand firm because you're not alone in this struggle. We're in good company. The family of believers all over the world is in the same fight. Look at verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Resist the enemy and the God of all grace. Don't you just love that phrase? The God of all grace. Luther said the grace is God's middle name. He is the God of all grace, and he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Did you notice the contrast? God has called us to his eternal glory, but we suffer just for a little while. Glory will be eternal. Suffering's just a little while. He says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials for a little while. Romans 8 says that we should consider the present sufferings as not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians is very helpful, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. That's what they are. They're just light and they're just momentary. And they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not what on is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. This life is just a little while. You'll suffer for a little while. But God has called you to his eternal glory. Isn't this part of the battle of the Christian life? Is to have an eternal perspective. The enemy wants us so caught up with today and so caught up with this week, or even caught up with the next 80 years, if we would just focus on the next 80,000 years. He says, The God of all grace will take care of us. After we suffer just a little bit, He will restore us. He will strengthen us. He will make us firm. He will make us steadfast. This word for restore, it's the same word used in the Gospels for mending nets. He will mend us. It's also used in in the medical field to set broken bones right. He will mend us. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be right now. Things are broken. But God's going to make a new world with no suffering. It's coming. No tears. No pain. So let's persevere. Glory is coming. This will only last a little while, but eternity is coming. He will mend us, attend to us, fix us, make us whole, stand us up, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. What we believe about what he will do, what we believe about the future will shape the way we live in the presence. We saw in chapter 5, verse 6, he will lift us up in due time. He will restore us. I love the Wesley family. Susanna Wesley had John Wesley who founded Methodism. Uh, Charles Wesley who sings some of the greatest hymns the church has ever seen. She had 17 other children as well. And notice she was buried in Bunhill Cemetery. Her her epitaph says this. Ensure and certain hope to rise. Rise from the dead. Ensure in certain hope to rise and claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian here, her flesh laid down, the cross exchanging for a crown. He will make us strong. You'll suffer for a little while. He will make you firm and steadfast. And then Peter closes here with just a few greetings. In verse 12, <clears throat> he says, with the help of Silas, or, Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. So does my son, John Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Silas was a faithful brother, helped Peter. He may have been the one that actually wrote the letter, as Peter told him. He may have been the courier that sent it on. He may have been both. We don't really know. And the church, she is a church, she who is in Babylon, also chosen, greets, sends her greetings. Babylon being used symbolically, of course, for being away from home. If you know the history of Israel, they were in exile. And so this sister church, who's also away from home, but also chosen. That's how he started the letter, right? To the elect exiles. Scattered throughout. We're not home. We're in Babylon. We live here, but our citizenship is in heaven. Resident Aliens And John Mark sends his greetings, and he encourages us to greet each other with a kiss of love. Fittingly, he mentions love once again. We've seen love in basically every chapter of 1 Peter. And here he says, hey, you ought to show expressions of love. Now, in our culture, we don't do the kiss of love. Find that in Latin countries. You can find it in the Bible. We don't do that. So we have ladies' hugs, guys and gals, you know, Christian side hug. (laughs) Guys, you know, the love dap. You know, we'll we'll do the hug. We'll just keep that arm between, right? I love you, brother, but our chest ain't touching. (laughs) Whatever it looks like for us, expressions of love. And tradition tells us Peter practiced what he preached. Peter went on to continue to preach the gospel, and he ended up being crucified upside down. He died by inverted crucifixion by the Romans. He blessed when he was insulted. He lived this message. And we know this church heeded this message as well. This church in this area of Asia Minor flourished. It became the cradle of Christian doctrine. And it hosted in the four centuries to come many of the great councils. They heeded the words here that this is the grace of God. Stand fast in it. I think this is the whole letter. Everything he said. This is the grace of God. What's our response? Stand firm. Everything he has said, starting back in chapter one, verse one, stand firm in the grace of being chosen, being elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Stand firm in the grace of the sanctifying work of the spirit in verse two in the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the new birth where you've been born again, not into a dead hope, but to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Stand firm in the grace of knowing we can rejoice in all kinds of trials, knowing God is purifying our faith, which will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God is for us. There is no condemnation. There's only Loving discipline from a father who cares for us more than we can even imagine. A father who gave his only son and will not withhold from us any good thing. Stand firm in the grace of the gift of the inheritance. We've been given, which will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for us. The world can take everything we have, it cannot touch our glorious identity in Christ and our unfading inheritance. He says, Stand firm in the grace that empowers us to obey and not conform to our former evil desires, but rather we can be holy as the Lord is holy. Stand firm later in chapter one in the grace of being redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb and the grace of being born again, not of perishable seed, not of seed that dies, but of seed that is imperishable, the living and abiding word of God, the grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of the Lord will endure forever. Stand firm in your calling to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, being God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his special possession with the purpose that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. He says, stand firm as your status in chapter three is foreigners and exiles, living such good lives that the pagans will see us and give glory to our God in heaven, following the footsteps of Jesus, who blessed when he was insulted. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, not repaying evil for evil, but resting in the grace of the one who judges justly, us resting firm, standing firm in the grace of the one who bore our sins on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Stand firm in the grace of the victory of Christ towards the end of chapter 3. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. Now he's gone to heaven. He is at God's right hand. Stand firm in the grace that helps us love each other and show hospitality and use our gifts for his glory. Being enabled, being empowered to rejoice. Rejoice in our suffering, because we know that the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. Stand firm, Peter says, because the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory, will mend you, strengthen you, confirm you, and establish you. To him be the power and glory forever and ever. Amen.